Kwariwarmi is a podcast created by and for the queer BIPOC community to be unapologetically ourselves. Our identities are complex and none of us fit neatly into a single category. We're here to share parts of our lives, identities, and discuss our intersectionality as well as current events. Kwariwarmi was a term used for the third gender and androgynous shamans in the Inca Empire. Here, we celebrate our roots, honor our ancestors, and break down colonialism. This is your host, Mariana Munasi. In today's episode, I talked to my friend Enya, who's a biracial, queer, radical environmentalist, settler, accomplice, and self-proclaimed slut. As we get into the meat of this episode, we talk about what it's like to be a settler, accomplice, and illegally occupied Hawaii, what it's like to live in a multiracial home, intersectionality, and the problems with eco-colonialism, the safety concerns and fears that come when we start to come out, and the ways that we take back our sensuality to liberate ourselves and protect our resources. Warning that we do use some explicit language throughout the episode, so if you have a little one around, you might want to save listening to this podcast uh, for a later time when you're by yourself. Thank you for being with us today. Um, Can you share a little bit about how you identify and your pronouns? Yes, so um, my pronouns are she, her, and also I'm going to say this for the first time ever to anyone that's not my close friend, but they, them. I've been feeling a lot more fluid with my gender recently, and just the more I learn about gender in general, the less connected I feel to just being a woman. I don't know, I still feel like a woman, but definitely that's not all that's there. And I think that's that's all I can say about that right now. Um, but yeah, she, her, they, them. And I identify as queer. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Um, can you tell us about uh, where you grew up? Yeah, so a little bit of a story. Take some explaining. Um, I was actually born in Merced, California. Um, but then uh, when I was young, my mom got a job in Hilo, Hawaii, at uh, Hawaii Community College. So we moved to Hawaii, and I grew up between Hilo and Puna. Um, And yeah, then I moved away for a while to go to university, and now I'm back. Awesome. Um, What culture, ethnicity, race do you associate most with? Or maybe not most with, but what do you associate with? (laughs) This is always a very difficult question for me to answer. (laughs) Um, Because, I mean, I still still don't know how to answer it. So I I guess the only way I can answer it is to tell you a little bit more of my context growing up. Um... Because, yeah, it is it is hard to answer that question. So, you know, I'll start by introducing my ancestry a little bit, which I think will help explain that. Um, so my mother mainly raised me, my birth mother, and she is a settler on Turtle Island, or she grew up as a settler on Turtle Island, um, mixed European ancestry. Um, and my birth father... He is Latino. Um, he grew up 
in I honestly don't even know where I grew up where he grew up because I have not had contact with him in many years um but I think it was near LA um I do know that from his mother's side his grandparents um immigrated from Mexico but his grandpa is Guatemalan and I do know that his father uh, is Mexican um but I haven't spoke to him in many years so that's that's a part of me that it still feels like a part of me and um you know when I was growing up it was it was part of my life and part of my identity but it feels kind of like it's been cut off and it still feels like it's there but uh but I do feel um more connected to uh to well okay you're asking about what I associate with most um but I will say I grew up in Hawaii so growing up in Hawaii um and also and, can you talk about your who you yes you call your dad now. yes yeah I'm getting to that so <laughs> no 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 um so being Hanaid um and and the word Hanai to me is is much more than like step. So he's technically my stepdad. Um, so when we moved to Hawaii, my mom met someone and she fell in love pretty quickly after. And, and he denied me. And it actually took me many years to understand what that word even means. And I still don't think it's something I could ever understand because I don't speak the language. And, um, I'm not Hawaiian and it's such a powerful word so I don't want to say that I even like understand the weight of it but you understand how it feels but I understand how it feels life. <laughs> yeah and in my own life it does feel like like he's my dad um you know he didn't know me my whole life but when when I was having uh, a really hard time in life and when my birth father wasn't there he stepped in and um, it actually wasn't until I was uh, staying um, on Mauna Kea for the Protect Mauna Kea movement that I just, like, it really hit me, like, the weight of that word. Um, because I realized, I don't remember the exact, like, moment I realized it, but I realized that, like, oh, wow, this is, like, he's felt like this for years, and I have known it, but I've been resisting it, and I think a lot of that is just coming from, um, a Western background and context, you know, like, like I said, my birth mother raised me, um, and, um, and yeah, so I remember talking to my dad and I, I wrote him a letter when I was on the Mauna and I said like, yeah, you're, you're my dad. You've always been my dad. And I, I feel like I need to say this now. And, um, he actually cried and <laughs> he told me like, you know, and you're like to Hanai someone, it's, it's not like step. It's like, I am your father and it will always be that way. And even if you, even if I'm not with your mother anymore, then, you know, I'm still your dad. Like with his previous marriage, he said those two kids, um, are still his kids. So it's kind of like this bound that we it's like a reciprocal bound but we both like take that accountability for each other so you know I'm not just accepting the parts I like he is my dad so he is a whole human and yeah so I 
long story short, I do feel like I identify with, um, with Hawaii. Definitely, I'm not Hawaiian, and that's not anything I would ever want to even claim, but I do feel like this place is my home. Um, and I guess that's all I can say. Um, I mean, I definitely identify as white because I experience uh, white privilege. So, and I know that like a lot of my context has been from like a Western lens. So I guess like if I could say, I could say white, but I have been wanting to connect more with like my Latina um, side. I guess it's still a part of me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, definitely a very interesting intersection between your your blood and what you know and what you don't know. Um, right. of, as far as like where that indigenous side has come from, and also being able to, well, I, I don't. Oh, yes, being able to live in a household with a Hawaiian dad and live in a very like cultural <laughs> place with this third culture that maybe it's not like directly blood, but it's definitely still, I mean, and knowing you as a person, like you embody a lot of those values of Hawaiian culture. So it's like a nice little mix of <laughs> a lot of different things. Um, what ha what has been your experience uh your your LGBTQ journey? My oh yeah. It it has been a journey and I said that before and I'll say that again <laughs> because it it continues to be a journey. Yeah. Um and yeah, I, I see it as always being a journey uh, especially with the world we live in that you know so many of these structures that have been imposed on us um want to harm us just for being who we are so so it has been a journey and also because of that I um I didn't come out until I was it was just a few years ago um and like I said before I'm still I'm still coming out <laughs> I think and I think it will continue to be like that because there's still a lot of internalized uh, homophobia that I need to address within myself or that I continue to address um so I, I want to acknowledge that because I feel like, you know, that'll help me like heal and better accept myself. Yeah. Um, but it has, what has it been? It has been, yeah, it's been long, definitely. <laughs> um, it's been confusing. Um, but I think above all, it has been freeing because I've, I've recognized in my life, like the more I embrace my queerness or the more I accept that within myself, like the more, um, the more free I feel in all aspects of my life. Yeah. Um, so it, it has been, I think above everything freeing mm. for me, like for my authentic self, all of yeah. the other outside factors, you know, it's been different things, but sure. Freeing. What do you feel has been the most difficult part of it? I think um, something that I've been thinking about a lot is that I I realized that I'm trying to think of how to word this. Well, okay, so I'm I'm straight passing definitely, and I have been with more cis 
hetero men than um, anyone else. So it was always like more comfortable for me to make those connections. Um, so when I when I came out, you know, it it wasn't <laughs> obviously it wasn't as comfortable. Um, you know, I when I I had a partner and um, we would hold hands in public and I would just would notice things that were just I would never notice if I was like with a cis hetero man like the stares sometimes the glares and then also with family like um, when I came out to my grandparents my grandma said that she didn't accept it and she never would but she still loves me <laughs> even though she doesn't accept who I am <laughs> um, I like we yeah. always like say that kind of like laughing because it's yeah. absolutely insane and ridiculous <laughs> yes yeah, so and that's something that would never happen with um a cis right. hetero man so I also realized that I hadn't been holding myself accountable because I there had definitely been times when I was choosing something that would be easier for me over something that was also authentically myself because mm-hmm. um, there have been times in my life where I have uh, had s- sexual experiences with people who are not men and um, I enjoyed it but I, I, I kind of blocked myself from thinking that it was that it was queerness mm-hmm. um, so I guess I yeah I realized that I, I hadn't been holding myself accountable so that and that's something that I still think about, um, because I, I, I would feel more uncomfortable holding hands with someone that looks more like me on the street, well, perceived to look more like me, because, you know, we all have these perceptions <laughs> about gender, even though that doesn't mean that's your gender, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, than a cis, hetero-looking man. So, definitely... I've been thinking a lot about accountability, too. Mm. With that freedom, it comes that accountability yeah thank you for sharing that um can you think back at your first memory of of race or like when you were made aware of race or when race was exposed more blatantly (laughs) yeah when race was exposed um uh, there's there's a lot of things I could talk about I think one that really sticks out is with my birth father um because my birth father is, oh, he's a white Latino, like his, um, his skin is light. Um, but you know, he looks Latino, so people would come up to him and try to speak Spanish. Um, and his family members were not white. Like his mom is not white. His grandparents, not white. And I think, um, he really held on to that proximity of whiteness and he wanted to take that and this is my interpretation as a kid and I mean I have reasons to think that like on my birth certificate he only wanted my mom to write white so they actually mm-hmm. got into an yeah. argument Wow. Um, and um, growing up like he would never speak Spanish to me like I remember his mom speaking Spanish to him and he would just refuse to speak to her in Spanish and I remember um, being at my great-grandparents' house, um, one two I told you, um, one was from Mexico, one's from Guatemala, and uh, they would speak to me in Spanish. They actually didn't speak uh, much English at all, but he would not really speak to them. He would just kind of sit in the corner, and um, I, I didn't see them much, really. 
Um, but my mom actually told me that once, uh, her grandfather, cause my mom speaks a little Spanish, took her aside and said like, you know, the, the problem with my grandchildren is that they, they're afraid to speak Spanish and they're afraid to acknowledge their roots. So I think that, um, I could see, and I, I didn't know how to think about it or explain it cause mm. I was just a child, but I could yeah. see my birth father really like searching for that proximity to whiteness like at a very young age mm. um so yeah that's something that definitely stood out to me mm. how do you perceive that now like having like being in a different uh <laughs> place both in age and awareness <laughs> of, of how the world functions <laughs> it makes sense now yeah <laughs> it makes sense now and I, I've talked to a lot of friends in the Latinx community and, um, I've told them the story of my birth father and they, they would kind of just nod and be like, oh yeah, I've, like that I've happens. heard this story yeah. or in other, um, like BIPOC communities, just proximity to whiteness because, um, white supremacy is, um, doing its best to captivate us in every way that it can and, yeah, proximity whiteness. So, you know, just thinking that you are going to be more successful, you're going to do better if you are closer to whiteness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the more I, the more I learn about it and the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, this is just fucking absurd. And, yeah. and the angrier I get and right. just the more, you know, yeah. I want to learn. So the more I can hold myself accountable and not act in that way yeah <laughs> in my life yeah I think it's hard to it's both enraging and also like realizing that we live in a world now where a lot more people are talking about this <clears throat> and we're like coming together more to like fight these ideas um whereas like before the understanding was I feel like in if we can like think about Hawaiian culture we can think about Latinos in in on the continent and it's like so many other <laughs> uh, cultures but you weren't allowed to speak your language right. and like in some instances it was completely banned um, and others were just like you just don't speak it if you want to like be successful in life and so it's right. it's hard now to be able to like look back and like there because there's resentment because like that's a cutoff like the language is such a tied to culture and like how you see the world and how you experience the world and like not being able not having learned or have not been taught those things um can cause resentment because like a lot of people now have this like feeling of loss and feeling of loss like of things and culture but also loss of like I don't know who I am right and um and it's hard to balance like especially I think when if people like if your grandparents are still in your life and that's their continued perception of like we're not going to talk our language because this is what it meant to us mm -hmm. um, versus how we're like approaching it now and like having compassion for like their own internal like colonization while we're like actively fighting against it right it's, hard. it's a hard balance <laughs> It is a hard balance. Yeah. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about like your nuclear family and like the rate the like racial like visual even visual differences between like your siblings and like your your mom and your dad? <laughs> yeah. So um, I have two beautiful, amazing siblings who uh, I will take some of the credit because I am uh, I think a big part of helping raise them, and it's it's really it's been an honor to be to be so such a prominent person in their life um, right now. I mean, I was away for a while, but since I've moved back, I've, I've been seeing a lot of them. But um, so my brother's name is Jeffrey John Kai Olohia Kalavli, and he just turned six on July 1st. And my sister is Moani Ani Lehua Hamahota Kalavli, and she just turned four. Um, so... Yeah, they are half Hawaiian, um, and then my birth mother is also their mother. So, I mean, in what is modern terms, I don't even know if I'm mm-hmm. saying that right, but you would say half sister and brother, but we agreed in the family to never say that mm. because that's, that's nice. It's, they're not half of anything. Yeah. They, are, they are my siblings. Like, you know, yeah. we share blood, and even, you know, if we didn't, if they were my siblings, they were my siblings. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that, like, both my mom and my dad wanted to be clear with us is that like, there's no half anything. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that might also be a colonial understanding of things because right with blood quantum and it's just like separation, you really, there's that, there's that need to just categorize everything. But, um, and who's more of what, who's more of less than, (laughs) right. Yes. Um, but, yeah, my siblings, they, so people actually think Moani's my kid <laughs> a lot of times because she, we both have like the same, uh, like wavy curly hair and it's kind of the same color too. And we do have like a little bit of resemblance, but they definitely also, uh, look like their dad. Um, but yeah, so they both, uh, they well, Moani just got accepted. They both go to uh, Navahi, which is um, an immersion school. So we're trying to all do our part to speak Olelo as much as possible um, yes. in the house. Um, but, oh, sorry, did I get a little off track no, no, with the question? Nice. It's a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. <laughs> just, like, not going to look at it. Yeah. Um, no, I guess I'm just, like, trying to get an, an idea of what it's like to live in an interracial household and in in a place that's not primarily white right yeah so I guess and with the kids that's also something that I'm trying to have conversations with them around already because you know that horrible saying I don't see color which is Mm. complete bullshit because (laughs) everyone sees color and to ignore that is to like not validate someone's experience. Not validate someone's experience, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, so we've already had these conversations, and it's it's very obvious that um, mom and dad look different, <laughs> um, and I look different, and, like, you know, they're getting to that age, too, where, like, my sister, she asked me the other day, she's like, who made you? Wow. <laughs> I was like, um, mom made me. <laughs> but I think they're also, like, they know that they're my siblings, but they are curious... Um, the other part of me Mm. that made me. (laughs) Um, And I think 
and you know they also um my grandparents live on the same property as us and my grandparents mm -hmm. are um white settlers <laughs> and they uh <laughs> they love us dearly um and they also have a lot of privileges that they are not ready to recognize mm -hmm. and um I know that my brother and sister are getting a mix of ideas about mm -hmm. <laughs> about race and identity already, and they're so young. Um, so, so yeah, I am trying to have these conversations with them because it is already very much a part of their life. Um, but for me, and I guess on on the side of that, for me, um, I do recognize that. Um, I'm a settler on their land, which is interesting because it definitely, like, it feels like my home and I know that I'm connected to them, like, both, like, through blood and through, like, this connection. Um, so I recognize that, but I also recognize that I am, like, a settler in Hawaii and that um, their identity as Native Hawaiians is not something that I will ever be able to understand. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I understand that, um, being, uh, an important person in their lives. So I think that something else is like, it's, it's great that it's not, um, that they're going to an immersion school and like, you know, growing up with their culture, um, because I know that that's not something that I can provide for them in their life. Yeah. But I do, I want to support them yeah. even knowing that, you know, there are things that I won't ever understand. Yeah. But I, I guess I just want to support them as much as possible, um, knowing the history of this place and yeah. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about interracial relationships that you've <laughs> experienced? <laughs> yes, I can. We continue to talk about race. <laughs> yeah. So there's a song, um, do you know Moses Sumney? I don't think so. Oh, I love Moses Sumney. But there's a song um, that they wrote, and it's called Quarrel. And there's actually an episode um, where they explain it on Song Exploder uh, on Spotify. It's like okay. these short little episodes where artists explain their their oh, cool. um, the songs, their songs, the song that they choose. Nice. And um, the song... Well, you can listen to the episode because I won't do justice of explaining <laughs> the meaning of the song. But it's basically one element of the song is, or the element of the song, the main component of the song <laughs> is that um, you can't really call anything a lover's quarrel because in relationships, someone is always in a place of privilege. Mm -hmm. And if that person, especially in like you know, like interracial relationships, if this person is not willing to hold themselves accountable, then that relationship will not work. Mm. Um, so when, so my first queer relationship, uh, I was thinking a lot about that song at the end of our relationship because, um, I had realized that I had not held myself accountable and I had not addressed my privileges at times in the ways that I should have to like support the relationship. Um, Can so, you give us some examples? Yes, I am. Yes, I will. So sh uh, she's Vietnamese. Um, and, and you were living in Europe. We were living in Estonia. Yes. And 
Estonia oh, is an interesting place to live. I, I love Estonia, um, but it's also not the safest place to be queer or brown. Um, and she is both. And uh, she is also less straight passing than I am. Um, and, you know, there, there were times when I, I was definitely ashamed, um, not ashamed. I was, I guess I was just afraid, mm-hmm. um, afraid of being queer. And, um, at the same time, I, I, I could feel that I was holding this space of privilege because of one, I'm white and, um, there it is very, I mean, everywhere in the world, but white supremacy and white privilege is real. Um, and you know, I could feel that in our relationship and I'm also straight passing. So I, I definitely realized too late (laughs) that I, I needed to take more accountability than I took and I needed to be braver than I had been. Um, and you know, at times I was, I was a coward and, you know, that really, that really got me thinking about privilege in relationships and, and it is, yeah, it is definitely, it takes work to address your privilege in relationships. But I think that we need to do it, especially in interracial relationships, especially if there's like a white partner or someone that's white passing. I actually want to go back to the part that you were just saying about the fear and the, uh, somewhat the internalized homophobia and, um, and I'm glad that you're bringing up, you know, being courageous and like using your privilege within the world to, um, be aware within the relationship and like how that might create some imbalance, um, but I I specifically want to talk about the the fear of like something like holding hands in public mm. and like some of the fears that in general that come out from when you start to come out um, because I've I've experienced that I'm sure every queer person has experienced like especially the first few times of like is this safe to do what are people going to do and what you were saying before of like right. being hyper aware of like when you are in a queer relationship and you are like showing any kind of um public displays of affection (laughs) Uh, even if it's as little as like holding hands or you know making out or something in public but um how you are like often hyper aware of what other people are thinking or perceiving because we know how the world works and so we're i feel like in a lot of ways we I don't want to say we look for it, but we're just so much more aware that we're, like, outside of the norm, that we're, like, also looking to see if we're in a safe place to do it, Mm -hmm. or, like, if people are going to say something, or if people are going to do something, because they are uncomfortable with what they're seeing. Right. Um, Have you had any other experiences outside of, like, holding hands in public where you've experienced fear from being in a queer relationship? I I guess there was more discomfort than um, outright fear 
of my safety. Mm. Um, there, but you know, there's a lot of things that I, as a woman, <laughs> am used to True. that I don't <laughs> think we should be used to. Right, just right, like right. complete fetishization of basically everything we do, right? <laughs> um, but I noticed that a lot in this relationship, especially like if I went out with her, you know, there would be times when like, like men would come up to us and say something. Um, and it just, I felt like it gave them an excuse to just, that they thought they had an excuse to just like be so much more, um, crude and like disgusting and just kind of make any kind of comments that they want. Cause like, you know, queer women are also hypersexualized. I mean, all women I think are because right. of media and patriarchy. Um, and I think that queer women are also hypersexualized, yeah. especially like two women dating <laughs> and, and making a man's threesome dreams come true. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I felt a lot of that. Mm. Um, and, you know, there were places that I was actually going to move to Vietnam mm. before COVID. And we were kind of just talking about, like, uh, and she was like, you know, I, I didn't care there. But, like, there are places that we're going to travel where it's... We're just friends. <laughs> and where we're just friends, yeah. Mm -hmm. And people will probably just think we're friends and that'll be easier. So it's just, like, also, we are both... Um, we've both traveled a lot and... Um, just thinking about how how safe we would be in mm. certain places or how safe we wouldn't be yeah. and in other places. Yeah, and that's really something that heterosexual cisgender people will literally never, like, even have in their, like, <laughs> just any kind of view. Exactly. Of, like, if I take a vacation somewhere, will my safety be at risk? Right. Um, and that's just not something that is... A thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that was new. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think we talked about this a little bit earlier in our uh, an earlier conversation, but the feeling of even for your own safety of having to hide who you are can really like internalize a lot of the feelings of like increase the feelings of shame because right. like I think in general like psychologically speaking when we feel like we have to hide something um there's like a shame attached to it as if like what you're doing is not okay and like how what that does that to you to your identity and even like in partnership like especially if one person I think is more comfortable being out mm -hmm. and the other person isn't how that will affect the health of a relationship because definitely if someone feels like they have to hide um that can be like the other person could like perceive that as like are you ashamed of me are you ashamed of our relationship like do you love me less than you would like a straight partner right um and even like in the future what is this gonna look like and there's a lot like i've experienced that that fear like i've definitely experienced a fear of like can i hold someone's hand right now can i kiss somebody right now mm -hmm. um Especially around family. And oh. that's, like, something that I've definitely... I allowed my fears and my, like, discomfort of other people's discomfort um, who are homophobic to dictate how I acted with my partners. And 
it definitely like I I am very aware now of how that affected my relationship and how unfair that was for the other person um, to be treated like a friend and and not a partner for other people like for close-minded people's comfort and like I've actually had conversations with family members now to be like I should have never done this and I did this to like make you and I feel better because I could tell how discomfort or uncomfortable you were and I can promise you that I'm never going to do that again (laughs) um but like I lived in that fear for years and that's I think something else that a lot of people experience and it's not in the at all perspective of of heterosexual couples having to like worry about like kissing their partner in front of their family or like where they're at and like the safety of that um and just like again i want to go back to like how that affects us like emotionally and internally because while it's it can be at some points like physical safety like Mm -hmm. the fact that we feel like we have to hide something Mm -hmm. fucks with your head (laughs) it does fuck with your head (laughs) yeah and i was you know, there was a point when I was definitely, <laughs> um, I was like, this is not me. I'm not, I'm, I'm true and honest, but I'm not being that right now. So it did fuck with my head and knowing all of those things, by the way, that you just explained that happened in our relationship, um, how, you know, one person feels like they're just a friend or that, you know, you're just treating them as a friend if it's more convenient or if you're like protecting people who are homophobic and you know that's not that's not okay um so it is about I think like for me it's been about being forgiving with myself and also using that forgiveness to hold myself accountable and to do better Mm. because it's just huh grace yeah yeah graceful. (laughs) graceful it is it is not helpful for anyone to just live in guilt and that's yeah. I'm a very guilty person so that's one thing that in in all of my aspects of privilege I mm-hmm. have to at some point I have to be like no like you can do better mm-hmm. so forgive yourself yeah and do better right, right, <laughs> you know? right. yeah hanging on to the things that we could have oh <laughs> it's okay uh ha- doing or uh, hanging on to things that we have misstepped in in the past is only helpful if we can be graceful with ourselves and like move differently in the future. But like hanging on to that guilt is also like as as an ex Catholic <laughs> too. <laughs> I feel like the like the guilt part. I'm like, <laughs> like it's just it runs deep and and it's not it's it just hurts us. Mm-hmm. We can use it like we can use a tiny little bit of it to be better and to like change our behavior. But carrying that is heavy. It is. Um, what does intersectionality mean to you intersectionality I use that word all the time Um, yeah for me I guess I'm going to use the example of sustainability because that's that's the field I am well I'm in well education and sustainability the intersect of the (laughs) two Um, but for me I just think of intersection intersectionality as something that's absolutely essential for us to build any kind of world um that's like fostered in equity uh if we don't have an intersectional lens then 
something very important that is connected to everything else is being left out. Mm, yeah. So, in in the context of sustainability, you know, there's there's a lot of um, white environmentalism. Um, <laughs> I can just throw it out there, like <laughs> Tesla. <laughs> you know, they. they Elon Musk would call that environmentalism, but mm. it's rooted in white supremacy mm. and it is not at all acknowledging the ways in which the land and people are both exploited and like more than that are exploited to like produce, um, basically everything that that company, uh, you know, sends yeah. out to the people that are privileged enough to buy those items. Yeah. So for me, intersectionality is just like it just it doesn't work like in sustainability it doesn't work if you're not looking at racism and exploitation and patriarchy um because it is all connected right like patriarchy is is the idea and also it's also connected to white supremacy just the idea that you can take whatever you want you can take a woman's body you can take the resources land, <laughs> land everything <laughs> And, um, with no consequence and in turn that is destroying the planet. And that is also, um, you know, the people that are affected are the stewards of these lands that they're trying to protect. So I see intersectionality as like literally the only way like we can move forward or move forward, you know, with the future, <laughs> with the future, with the, yeah, with the future on this planet. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about like. Um, <laughs> the the things we talked about before, which is like um, greenwashing and um, just things like that, where where we can see how the environment, the environmental movement is like very very racist too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's so many. There's so many things. Well, I feel like in particular we. We, we, I feel like we live in a place where, like, that's very, like, under the microscope. Yeah, of that's awesome. who, like, even, even people, I want to say, with good intentions, <laughs> white people with good intentions here still, like, perpetuate the colonial, um, patriarchal, capitalistic system, and then a lot of them are on a high horse because they're vegan or vegetarian. Yeah, I was going like to bring the, up the vegan one. And then, <laughs> and then like the the sh the what gets to me a lot of times is like the shaming of like native or like people of color and how they use the environment. Right. And then like I'm like let's talk about lack of resources. Also let's talk about like how Native people historically have used all of what they use. <laughs> like, if you kill an animal, you use every part of it. Right. Um, and, and, like, the high horse that a lot of people ride on that say that they're kind of better than everyone else because of a, a specific practice without acknowledging literally any of the privilege that led them to be like, I can, sh you know, spend $500 at Whole Foods every week yeah. and I'm going to give you crab for, you know, buying bacon <laughs> okay here we go yes that is all yeah so that's actually what i was gonna bring up was great like, love am it. i gonna am i gonna do the vegan one all right let's do it um well the, yeah. and that's obviously just one example no it's, I feel it's like one it's very very relevant here it is it especially. is especially um, and especially in the areas that you live in where like 
Pune, yeah. <laughs> like Hilo, yeah, or for like, sure. have a lot of that. And I have a good friend who actually like wrote about this because she is uh, vegan and white, but she's basically writing about how white vegans need to take accountable and be intersectional with their veganism. Um, but I saw that a lot in Europe, you know, I saw a lot of white European vegans that really did seem to put themselves on a moral, um, high ground ground because, you know, they're vegan. And, you know, I got into this argument a lot because I, I have the, I have the perspective from living in Hawaii and, you know, to me, that understanding is that the the aina is alive so like it's not just plants and animals and people it's forests and the food that we eat and um the plants do have life and uh you know a lot of vegans really hate that argument (laughs) (laughs) um like i guess it's to them it's one of those arguments or not i'm not them like collectively i'm not going to collect like collectively speak on behalf of all vegans but i have been in uh, arguments with a few people who identify as vegan, and they have said that uh, that argument doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, but really, from my paradigm and from my upbringing, like I will have, like I will be better if I un- I will be less wasteful and more conscious of everything that I do if I understand that the food that I'm eating is a life and is a being and Mm -hmm. is a part of everything. Um, But, you know, at the same time, I understand that if it's between, like, a cow's life and my little sister, of course, I'm going to, like, choose my little sister. So it's, you know, they've also tried to use that. Then, like, then what if, like, your friend was there and there was a plant? Like, would you... Uh, Yeah. But I'm getting a little off, off track um, but I think there's just this lack of, of awareness of context, you know, of other contexts. And really that's what intersectionality helps with. So for someone, it sounds like absurd that I would say that like plants have life and that's like a reason why, like we should just respect everything we eat. Right. Mm. Like we should, it's for me, it's less about being vegan and it's more about, um, having an understanding and respect and like, um, ethical practices for everything that we consume because plants are also exploited. Right. Um, so that's, that's what I'm getting at. And I think I wasn't seeing a lot of that in some of the vegan communities I had entered in Europe because I had dabbled with veganism. <laughs> I, love I, dabble dabble. With it. I dabble with a lot of things. I do. <laughs> uh, and I think like a lot of people like have great reasons to be vegan. Yeah. But yeah. No, I mean, I don't think there's, there's nothing wrong with being vegan. No, not at all. Um, and to an extent it will make you more conscious of what you consume, mm-hmm. but it doesn't always mean that you're conscious of that I guess you like you're saying the ethical practices of that, and also like to me, uh, most of the people that I've encountered that are vegan are like white and relatively affluent. They're not living in poverty. Yes. Right, and so I feel like I my issue with it of like their lack of intersectionality is like first of all, for some reason, most of them seem to be like 
on a high horse <laughs> and like yeah. on like a soapbox telling everyone else how like they're killing the planet and like it could be like a a white man that's like telling me a brown indigenous woman right. like how I'm helping murder the planet and I'm like let's have a conversation about the world and its history yes and and then there's like the whole like I don't want to say mansplaining but the concept of mansplaining of like a white person telling an indigenous person about like environmental stuff and I'm like white explaining yeah right. it's like <laughs> Are you really trying to tell people that have, like, lived sustainably for thousands of years without killing the planet how not eating meat is, or, like, how eating meat now is, like, ruining everything? Yeah. And, I mean, th we get back into, like, the the privilege of, of and, you know, um, they're, they are doing something good for the planet, and also they're Definitely. absolutely failing to recognize that their existence and, like, their whiteness and their, you know, able-bodied and their heterosexuality and all of the things that are in favor of them, like, that that does not even, like, that's not in their, in their vision. There's not, like, they're just like, I'm vegan and I'm saving the planet yeah. and anyone that's not doing that. And it's like, exactly. if you were actually intersectional and saw how all of these things were connected, then you really, first of all, wouldn't be criticizing, like, other people for their own fights that they're picking because right. like if someone is fighting for protecting sacred land on a mountain that you know will protect water for an entire island right and they happen to be eating some pork <laughs> exactly that, who, by the way they might have killed themselves and right. you know it's invasive and all this stuff <laughs> like right. like that that is seen oh. as like a negative, like, bad thing that they're doing. And... Yeah. Even so, just that placing the blame on the individual is just, like, diverting, right? It's, right? it's a diversion tactic, and that's exactly what the corporations want us to do so that we're just fighting with each other right. instead yeah, of in breaking down these systems. Right. Um, and I just want to point out that I, I think that the meat and dairy industry is horrendous mm. yeah. and completely completely a crime against all beings um yeah. so i definitely don't support it um but yeah like you were talking about it's more about just this moral high ground and this lack of willingness to learn the other ways in which your fellow beings on this planet are oppressed yes. <laughs> your fellow human beings on this planet yeah and it just doesn't make sense to me yeah yeah <laughs> how you can see that the environment or that the environment or that other animals are oppressed but yeah. completely ignore it with humans i feel like i want to like now tap into the other topic that i know that we're going to cover because um exoticizing women is also <laughs> part of like capitalism and the patriarchy and all of these like colonial uh systems that we have already talked about and we're going to talk about sexuality and sex. Yeah. <laughs> how is that how is that tied into all of that <laughs> in your perspective? How is it tied into what we were just talking about? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I think everywhere that you see exploitation of the land, you see exploitation of women. Mm -hmm. I mean, you in Hawaii you see it with like what the tourism industry has done with hula. And which is such a sacred spiritual practice and the exoticization of um, women. 
Hawaiian women. Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's the reference of in like the Western world always referring to land in the female right sense is I feel like just makes it it's like the language that like going back to the language that we use um, is both rooted in what we see and like the foundation for what we do and I think that uh, Western societies use of female language for land perpetuates the abuse the neglect and the theft of it yeah that is that's interesting because I'm also wondering in like how many other languages like what gender the land is um... yeah well I think we would have to go not uh, to I would want to compare like western languages and right. or, like colonial languages yes, and, and native languages. Yes. Because I'm like immediately I'm thinking like Spanish, but Span- the Spaniards it's also were a colonial, colonial language as yeah. fuck. Like they yeah. took over half of the world. Yeah. So I'm curious <laughs> about that. Um and I am also yeah, I I definitely see that cuz like we were talking about earlier. If you can take everything from the land that symbolizes a woman to you, mm. then you can also take everything from a woman, right? And it's yours. It's yours to take. And I think... You're entitled to it. You're entitled to it. And I think, like, the entitlement is, like, a disease of white supremacy. Your White supremacy is a disease, but the entitlement is a huge aspect of that. Um, and that also comes from the patriarchy. Um, but you know, you see like women can be entitled to, cause we've all like indoctrinated these systems in us yeah. as well. But I think with the environments, definitely entitlement. And especially here, I see that so much with tourism because people want to feel entitled to a little piece of paradise yeah. as the world says. And it's disgusting because, you know, people have been and are suffering at the expense of that and that's how exploitation works um so in your perspective how do we um how can we take that back (laughs) i mean i'm a radical so i really think this entire system needs to be dismantled i think we need a revolution Mm. Uh, and i think tiny revolutions are happening all around us but and and revolutions I think are also inevitable. You know, a lot mm. of people say like, oh, that's not going to happen. But like, if you look yeah, like, at history, history, like revolutions happens often. <laughs> happen often. Mm. And I think, I think we need a revolution, really a revolution within ourselves and a revolution collectively, because that's also connected. Right. Um, so I guess in one word, I would say revolution, but I understand <laughs> that a lot of work um, and pain and change and that that's a heavy word and that's a heavy responsibility but I think that that is the only way we're gonna be able to unleash ourselves from this from the system mm. from these systems of oppression they're all working together to just keep us working so that we forget about about the destruction, yeah. right? 
can we talk about how that is tied in into like the sovereignty of women and sex and like free that liberation and freedom yeah sure <laughs> so i do think taking back um our bodies and our sexuality is also taking back ourselves if we so you know being sex positive so on instagram <laughs> i I identify as an aspiring, aspiring everything because I really, I try to be <laughs> Cause humble. Because I dabble. Because <laughs> I, I feel like I got to be humble too. Sure. Um, the aspiring revolutionary slut. <laughs> and when I identify as a slut, whew, I've been on Tinder um, for a while now and people really have a lot of interpretations on what slut means. And most of them think that it just means I want to fuck everyone, mm. which is like so far from what it actually means to me. So to me, like being a slut is doing that. It's taking, um, it's taking ownership back, um, back to my body for my body and, um, making my own meaning that exists outside of patriarchy. Um, I, for a long time, uh, and I still do in a lot of ways, but I, I did a lot of things for the male gaze or like, you know, I, uh, that that was a big part of my life, but just recently, I really feel like I've been able to break away from that more, and my sexuality has become my own, and it's also been freeing for me, because I've, with that, I've also learned about what's really not okay, but is taught to us that it is okay, you know, like, growing up, um, I went to Hilo High, and my sex ed class was abstinence based. <laughs> so sure just it worked really well. <laughs> right. And of course, you don't never learn anything about like women's pleasure. Um, that all had to come on my own. So I actually I didn't even orgasm until I was like 19. Um, and, you know, I'm not the only one. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's just because I, I didn't have the resources to learn about my body and my sexuality. And I was just fed this, like, very patriarchal, um, Christianized version, purity-based. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, Well, there's, teachings. I think there's, we're, we're taught, and I don't know, it, it could be a combination of places where this comes from, but we're taught that, like, women experiencing pleasure is selfish and, like, right. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's why I had also just, you know, I was like, well, maybe I just can't come, or maybe I just, like, have really small orgasms. But then I remember the first time I came and I was like, oh, shit, like... <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I've been living a lot. Yeah, and, I, you know, and then there was that, that anger, like, at mm. society, at patriarchy, and even at myself mm. for, like, for, like, believing. Is there something mm-hmm. wrong with me? Like, am like, I broken? We gaslight ourselves. Yeah, we gaslight ourselves. Um, and, you know, that's still something that I'm learning from because I still, honestly, like, I'll be completely open. I have a block with, like, having an orgasm, and I think it's just all of these internalized things, and um, I think a lot of women will agree we're taught to, like, put the man first so like in most cases like the guy would always come first or like you know that's just that's super normal uh normalized and the sex is done <laughs> and the sex is done and then you know when i started like revolutionizing my sexuality i mm. started to learn like wait this is not okay and then also the other thing that really like radicalized me with my sexuality was being in a queer relationship mm. because it was 
it was so different than <laughs> any other relationship I'd been in, especially like the sex. Um, because I don't even know how, how I would explain it. Um, but it definitely, I, I was just every day I would be like, Oh wow. Like I was doing this before. Oh wow. Like mm. this person is considering this, mm. which is also maybe like, you know, she knew my body because we had like <laughs> this, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, that really got me thinking about what I had normalized and how a lot of that was neither healthy or satisfying. Um, so that's something I'm thinking a lot about too lately. Yes. And can you talk about some of like the responses that you've gotten when you post things on social media? Oh yeah. Or like how has that <laughs> affected um, moving forward since that queer relationship when you are intimate with a man, how that looks? <laughs> well, you know, I, I've definitely been a lot more aware of things after that relationship, especially uh, when I've, had like sex with men um I've noticed a lot of things and I'm like wait like this is this is normalized but this is not not right right." (laughs) and it's you know and sometimes I'll tell people and they'll be like oh wow like I didn't even see that like thanks for telling me but then sometimes I feel like it just goes completely over their heads and then sometimes there's just like this like defensiveness Mm -hmm. and just like this like you know a lot (laughs) I've had a lot of guys say like oh, I'm, I'm good at sex. Like, I can, like, make you come. And it's like, okay, well, that tells me that you're not good at sex because to be good at sex for me is not about, like, the size of anything. It's mm-hmm. not about, like, your past experiences. It's about your ability to communicate and reciprocate and um, want to create a space of comfort because, like, for me, that's what fosters good sex. But, you know, patriarchy, that that's that's not compatible with patriarchy. Um so I've noticed that a lot more and it has radicalized me a lot more and it has made me more careful about what I choose to engage with. And like you were asking, like, how's it been on social media? Cause I've been speaking up a lot about these things on social media. Um, and one end it's been amazing because I've had people like, you know, for some, some, I post a lot of Instagram stories. So sometimes I'm just like, nobody's like, nobody cares about this. So like, sometimes I'll like post like a thirst trap in the middle. So I'm like, okay, you get to see this, but also like, you're going to be reading about revolution and, um, privilege and (laughs) you're going to be getting the politics too. So even if you just get a glance of that, uh, but I've, I've had people, uh, like a lot more people than I was expecting, like, come into my DMs and say, like, thank you for posting this. I'm learning a lot. Um, there's also, like, some <laughs> cis hetero men that are clearly sexualizing me with, like, the heart eyes with any kind of, like, yoga uh, video I post and, like, just, like, wow, like, so sexy. Um, and at the same time, also, I'll post something about how women can also, or, like, people with vaginas also, like, um, get erections, and they'll just be like, wait, I didn't know this, blah, 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 and then, like, we'll start having a dialogue, Mm. and sometimes that is, like, kind of a lot of emotional labor for me, because I do feel like people just kind of expect me to, like, give them resources and answers, um, but at the same time, I do feel like 
in a lot of cases, I have the energy to spare to do that. So I will provide those resources mm-hmm. and that conversation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely still see myself being sexualized, but I have also used that, you know, yeah. to be like, engage with this <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> activism. How would you, what, what advice would you give someone that's like, wants to take their body back or take their sexuality back and, and feel good in doing all of that and feel good in, in their sexual experiences and interactions? I think it would be really difficult for me to tell someone exact advice, especially because we all come from such different um, experiences, Um, but also safety. I'm privileged in the sense that I am safe to speak up about these things and I have the platform to do that and that there's not as much risk for what, you know, could happen to me, but I know that's not the case for many people. So I, you know, I can't just say like, yeah, just say everything you want, like be free. Cause right. unfortunately that's, that's not, that's not the case. But I think like what I would say to anyone is that, um, I support you <laughs> and there are communities and there are people that also support you and that want to support you, um, across this journey, whatever it means to you. And there are people who want to listen too. So I think like finding community is important because for me, that's also been just in all aspects of life, something that's one radicalized me, but two helped me find safety and purpose and meaning. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what would you tell a teen version of yourself? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Teen Annie was such a mess. <laughs> we got work. Um, Knowing what oh you my know gosh. <laughs> Do not get with all of those older boys. It's creepy. <laughs> it's, and why do you? What? Where do you think that was rooted in? Uh, from? Um. My my mom had. My mom was finding herself. My mom was absolutely the best mother that she could have been to me. And I, and I love her so much. Um, she was also finding herself when, (laughs) when I started or when I was growing up and, you know, she had some relationships that were pretty toxic, um, and one that was abusive. Um, and also I, I don't know. I hate the word daddy issues. (laughs) I really hate it. Um, I definitely felt, and I think it would be any parent regardless of the gender, I felt uh, rejected by my birth father. So I also ran around and did whatever the fuck I wanted. So I was doing drugs, like jumping off of bridges into the Wailuku River when I really should not have been doing that, (laughs) especially all the time, because, yeah, that river is... (laughs) yeah anyways um so I think a lot of it was what I had seen and just like the wildness of my nature to just like rebel in general Mm. and I did I did think it was exciting to have like you know older older people interested in me but Mm. you know there were times when I'm looking back and I was like that was not okay like I'll, I'll share a little story like one time um 
I was in eighth grade and my friend and I, uh, there were these like scene band boys, which was like totally like, like my vibe at the time. Um, and they invited us to go camping with them in Kona. And I think they were 18 and we were 13. Um, so still pretty much children. And, yeah. uh, we thought that we were just cool, right? Like they just want to hang out with like cool girls. So we went down there and, um, all they brought was like Coca-Cola and vodka, like no water too. And I was like, Oh my God, this is wild. This is going to be wild. But I, I felt in my, in my now, in my gut that it didn't feel good, but you know, I went anyway. And you know, there's like at the time I thought it was fine, but now looking back at it, I was like, that was not okay. Like, you know, this guy like forced himself on me and I have many stories like that. And my friends have many stories like that. Um, but I, I mean, saying like, I guess what I said was like, don't date older boys. But what I was really saying by that is, um, be careful. Um, you shouldn't have to be, but, but, uh, patriarchy is violent and, um, and be careful and also, and also heal, allow yourself to heal. Yeah, teenage Anya. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, I think this doesn't just apply to um, the Black Lives Matter movement, but how do you see non-black people of color um, that being good allies to native people and black people and like basically how do how do you how would you say we can use our privilege to good i think we've talked about like the word ally versus the word accomplice yes yeah i identify <laughs> as an accomplice yeah um right so i think an accomplice is like <laughs> i mean i i would i can say that i would die trying to protect these lands um and I think an ally is someone who maybe like provides more resources and like learns and listens but I don't know I guess I'm not really the person to define that but for me I I want to identify as right. an accomplice. well I'm asking but how you yes yeah. <laughs> how you can but yeah for me that's that's how I see it and I think that listening like as an ally or accomplice whatever you identify as like listening to listening to people who are experiencing something that you are not experiencing. And I think that's like one of the biggest, um, areas of white fragility is just like the ego. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and you also got to understand that like to be an accomplice is not to be liked by everyone or to have all of your needs met or mm -hmm. to like any of these things. Yeah. It is, not comfortable. It's not supposed to be comfortable because you're dismantling something within yourself. But, um, s still like it is, it is your responsibility. It's your kuleana, um, as someone in a place of privilege to listen, to listen. So I guess the main thing I would say is like actually actively listen and don't just assert yourself and assume that you know what's best for a movement because that, that just leads to more work for BIPOC, and mm -hmm. we don't want to do that. <laughs> right. 
Um, can you share some <clears throat> practices um, or talk about some movements that you're also passionate about or involved in sure. that maybe have helped you heal mm. or that you're just seeing as a priority to help us move in the right direction? Yeah, I'll talk about a couple. Is there like the closest to me? Um, so one practice has been uh, yoga. And I struggled <laughs> at first with the practice of yoga because I understand that yoga has been uh, whitewashed for many, many years and um, commodified by the West and is mainly available now in white spaces of privilege. Um, so definitely as a white, able-bodied yogi, I'm very aware of how that looks and how I even have the... Um, the privilege to practice, uh, with that being said, it has been, it has been a life changing practice because, you know, I think there's a lot of practices that help you align your breath to your movement. And what that does is it creates more awareness. And then if you have more awareness of your body, then, then you are more able to heal. And if you are more able to heal, then you are more able to, um, to be active in movements and in fighting oppression. So for me, yoga is a tool to, uh, to learn more about myself, to heal myself, to then do the work. Mm. Um, and the movement, uh, that has really, really changed my life is the Protect Mauna Kea movement. Um, yeah, I just... There's, there's so much I could say. Um, and, you know, I, I was only up there for a short time and there are people that have been for generations. Um, the, this mountain is a part of them and they've been fighting for that longer than I can even imagine. Um, but just to really see, like, that without, without our Aina, without land, we won't exist and we're nothing. That, that really just made me realize what's worth fighting for. And I think that is, has, and will continue to direct my life and my choices. Awesome. And that's how we met. And that's <laughs> how we that. met. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you talk about who some influential people in your life and why they have been influential? Yeah. So I have to shout out my mom because she... I think my mom taught me what a good ally looks like, um, because, you know, she is, she has always been very aware of her privileges and, um, she has made mistakes. Um, and she's shown me that through making mistakes, she's done better as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and she's just such a compassionate person. And I think that's really where I get a lot of it from. I see her as a pillar um, and other pillars, like really just all of the kiai, the protectors of land that I've met. Um, I, I just have to say anyone that's protecting the land, kiai, um, they have been just hugely influential because that's, that's how I aspire to be. So I just have so much respect and, um, and honoring for, um, people that, people that are on that path. And also my friends. 
um, like you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My friends have radicalized me and just like taught me so much, but also just been supportive and accepting because you know, we all have our issues, and I definitely have a lot of those. Yes, we do all have <laughs> our issues. We all carry our own baggage. <laughs> cool. Um, are there any last words, wisdoms, things that you'd recommend to people? I think for now, I've I've said I've said what I would like to say, and I'm just really honored that you would invite me to the space. Um, it, it's been, I've, I've talked about some things on here that I've only spoken about to my close friends. So, um, thank you for, you know, trusting me with this space and, um, to anyone else that's listening. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, where can people follow you on <laughs> social media so, <laughs> to uh, get thirst trap slash radical knowledge? <laughs> <laughs> so my Instagram handle is champagne jellybean, all lowercase. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you'll find me. Um, I'm trying to dabble with TikTok. I guess I dabble a lot this time. I'm trying to get more into TikTok. Uh, uh, but I'm just like I'm already addicted to Instagram, so I feel like that's Facts. <laughs> something else that I can't take on right now. So yeah, cool. All right. champagne jelly bean. Uh, feel free to DM me. <laughs> I'll respond if I have energy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and your vulnerability and your honesty. Um, all right, catch you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe to Kwariwarmi on the platform you listen to all of your podcasts on. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Kwariwarmi. If you know someone who'd be great to have on this show, or if there's a specific story you'd love to hear, message me with your ideas on Instagram. Thank you for listening and welcoming Kwariwarmi into your space as we continue to build community and support within the BIPOC queer family. See you next time.